Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Tonight, we'll be looking at a rule proposed by California's Air Resources Board to convert a large portion of the trucking industry here in the state to zero emission vehicles by the year 2040. How are environmental groups and trucking businesses reacting to the proposal? Later on in the show, you'll hear my co-host Grace Wan's interview with filmmakers Lisa Hepner and Guy Mossman, the directors of The Human Trial, a documentary about the hunt for a cure for type 1 diabetes. But first, tomorrow is Election Day, and while some results might seem predictable here in California, others do not. And we certainly rely on polls to anticipate election outcomes and assess where voters are thinking and feeling these days. But polling has certainly become more fraught lately with questions around accuracy and bias. But nonetheless, we want to know how are California's propositions polling? What are California's top concerns this election cycle? And it certainly wouldn't be election eve here on State of the Bay if we didn't have Mark DiCamillo of the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies back with us. He's here to talk about his recent California polls and polling in general. So welcome back to State of the Bay, Mark. Thank you. My pleasure being here. So, Mark, you have said that polling is actually easier to do in California than in some other states. Can you tell us why you think that's the case? Well, in regard to elections, we do have access to the voter rolls, which is how the Berkeley IGS poll conducts its surveys. We actually have decided against doing telephone surveys because people pretty much have abandoned their telephone in terms of answering calls from strangers or polling organizations. And instead, we're randomly sampling voters off of the voter rolls using their email addresses and sending an email invitation to them from the university asking them to participate in the poll. Uh, It's got a lot of advantages. Uh, We can get a large number of people into our samples. Uh, The cost of doing an email invitation survey is much less than trying to call people up with a live telephone interviewer. So we, in the current survey, we have over 7,600 voters, which enables us to, I think, get a more accurate snapshot of how voters are feeling. And is this a pretty unusual methodology that uh, you're using with uh, Berkeley IGS here? It is. It's something we've been experimenting with. And actually, I think we're on the cutting edge. Uh, It really does require the email addresses on the voter rolls, though. Unfortunately for us in California, over 10 million Californians have an email address appended to their voting record, which is a public record. And that's how we end up sending people these uh, emails. It's just a random sample of voters using their emails. And given the newness of this, does it have any track record so far of using this approach? Do you feel like the margin of error here is potentially less than what we might see with more traditional polls? Well, we did use them quite effectively in the Newsom recall election last year. It was really the first major election where we kind of tried it out, and it was within two points of the actual outcome. So I think our final poll did quite well. Uh, even in the June primary, we we polled uh, in both statewide races and in the L.A. mayor's race, and we were very close to the outcome using this method in both of those. So it's it seems to be working well. We're optimistic. We're always trying to improve it. Uh, and I think every pollster in the country really has to reassess their own methodologies and try to get to someplace different than they, where they were maybe five years ago. 
Yeah, well, I'm sure uh, you're very interested then in the results tomorrow so you can get a little more data to test how, how good this uh, this new methodology might be. I know there's a factor with what's called non-response bias, and I'm wondering how if you can explain what that is and, and how you approach it in, in your polling. Well, sure. All surveys, whether you're doing one by telephone or by email, you're only getting a real sliver of the actual population. I mean, I remember when I started polling with Mervyn Field back in the late 1970s, you'd get a majority of people uh, participating in your survey when you just called them at random. Now it's in the single digits, five to at most 8% of people responding to your poll. So you're getting a large chunk of people just refusing to participate, and yet you have to try to represent the entire population. And the only way you can do that is by kind of modeling the sample that you have and conforming them to the total characteristics of all registered voters. So uh, with a large sample, like 7,600 voters, we have a much better opportunity, I think, of modeling that 7,600 to conform to all of the various characteristics of the registered voter population here in California. We break it down by region, by age, by gender, by race and ethnicity, and we make sure that the final sample has the characteristics of the overall population in all of those characteristics. Mm -hmm. And what about exit polls? Are those still relevant anymore? It's becoming a real difficult task to do an exit poll for the same reasons. I mean, voting now is taking place over a three or four week period. I mean, there are already five million votes cast in California, uh, and you can't really just rely on a survey interviewer standing uh, at a precinct and trying to sample people, which was the method of exit polls when it was invented. Now you'd have to approach people in, in multiple ways. You'd have to try to do a survey of people who've already voted, try to add in the people who are showing up on election day. It's a much more complex process. And I, I personally believe it's less accurate than it mm -hmm. used to be. Well, speaking of those who vote early, do you have access to that data? And if so, do you use those uh, early voting results in your methodology when you poll folks? Well, we do. I mean, we ask people if they've the very first question in the survey when we're doing a, our final pre-election survey has to do with, are they likely to vote or have they already voted? And if they indeed have already voted, uh, we can actually, uh, because we sampled off the voter rolls, we can check and verify that the people who've already voted have in fact already voted. We can check by uh, checking their uh, voting record against the county's record of people who've already turned in their ballots. So we verify that the people in our sample who are saying they've already voted and how, uh, you know, then we ask them how they voted. That's certainly something we're going to report in our surveys. Uh, but we can actually verify that the people who say they voted have voted, which I think adds to our accuracy as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I appreciate you walking through the methodology here because it is very interesting how polling is done, particularly given how we've had so many skewed results uh, compared to what the polling had suggested in the last few elections. So I guess enough with the suspense. We want to dig into the results here of uh, Berkeley's uh, IGS poll. And I know you've uh, polled up until the end of October here and you've polled five different state propositions, one, uh, 26, I believe 27, uh, 30 and 31. Uh, they can correct me if I'm wrong on any of those. But first, let, let's talk about Prop 1, which is the constitutional right to reproductive freedom. It sounds like most conservatives say they're voting no on it, but it's popular with independents. I'm wondering, what, what do you see in terms of the polling so far on Prop 1? 
Prop one is comfortably ahead. And I'm sure uh, if there's an, any of the propositions that we're uh, as confident about in the statewide ballot, it's proposition one will very likely pass. Uh, abortion rights is something that Californians have long supported. This is really just enshrining it into the Constitution. Our poll is showing 64% of those that we contacted a week before the election intending to vote yes or already voting yes, 27% on the no side. So greater than two to one, almost three to one. I did notice the result that it's it's not very popular with Spanish dominant Latinos in the state, only 44 percent in favor. And given that that's a pretty large size electorate and a growing size electorate, what do you what do you make of that outcome? Well, you can look at slice and dice the poll in all sorts of ways. I would hesitate about going into smallish sample sizes which is exactly what you're pointing out is that we do have Spanish speakers in our poll. Uh, They're a small part of the overall registered voter population, however. And when you're getting to three or four percent phenomenon in the poll, I wouldn't lean too much on it. It is interesting to see, though. And I, you know, it was part of our poll. We reported it as such. Uh, But I wouldn't, you know, lean on small samples too heavily. All right. Well, uh, it's important to note. Let's talk about uh, a couple of propositions that appear to have uh, bipartisan consensus, which is not so frequent these days. And that's Props 26 and 27, the two bills that are both about legalizing online gaming. And they appear to be very unpopular with both conservatives and liberals. So what's happening with those two? Well, they both appear to be uh, uh, going down. Uh, Voters increasingly voting no uh, on both of the online gaming initiatives, or at least one of the Proposition 27 is the online sports wagering. The other is in-person sports wagering, Prop 26 on tribal lands. But our latest poll shows a much larger proportion uh, moving to the no side over the past month. And when measuring propositions, I think the most important thing to identify is the direction of change over the past month or two. And the direction of change on both of these propositions is heavily toward the no side. Uh, and it's becoming a broader, uh, you know, there's one more week after our polling. So I would suspect both of these will go down by big margins. Mm-hmm. Well, so among the propositions, the one that seems uh, the, the closest and most interesting, at least to me, we covered it on this program a few weeks back, is Prop 30. And that one provides funding for programs to reduce uh, air pollution, prevent wildfires by increasing tax on personal incomes over $2 million. It primarily goes to zero emission vehicle purchases and incentives, electric vehicle charging stations. And the politics here are really confusing. Governor Newsom has come out strongly against it, as have a number of billionaires, but it's championed by Lyft and the Democratic Party. Based on your polling, it looks like 47% said they'll vote yes, 40, 41% said they would vote no. So you've said this is still a toss-up. What are your feelings about it now? Well, again, uh, I look at the direction of change uh, over the past two polls, and we really had a slight decline in the proportion voting yes from September to late October, and a slight increase in the in proportion voting no. So the direction of change was to the no side, and then it's also only at 47%. It needs to get to 50 It was at 49% in late September, so it seems to be trending down. And again, having pulled on hundreds of ballot propositions, that's not a good sign. Uh, it could go either way. I mean, it needs three more percent from where it was uh, when we completed the poll. 
there was just 12% undecided. Uh, I don't know. It, I, this one could go either way. I'll be looking, uh, you know, to see how the early vote is, is uh, what is coming back uh, on election night. Uh, but it, this one, you may have to week of, wait a few weeks before we know the final outcome. Mm-hmm. And I, there was an article just today in the San Francisco Chronicle that the governor's ad campaigns against it seem to have been causing this decline that you just pointed out. Do you think there's evidence for that in the polling or is there any other way to indicate why it would be trending down based on your polling? I think that's probably true. I mean, he's been very visible. There's been a lot of advertising uh, with him as the spokesperson uh, encouraging voters to vote no, which, you know, the constituency of voting of supporters of a millionaire's tax are generally speaking Democrats. Republicans are going to start out probably on the no side to begin with. So to have the head of the Democratic Party in California, the governor, coming out so strongly and visibly uh, encouraging uh, his own party members to vote no, I think that is the main reason. If it goes down, uh, you'd have to attribute it to the governor's uh, uh, opposition to it. Mm-hmm. And given that it only affects people who make incomes over $2 million and that we've seen some of the data here that people who are make under 100000 a year are in favor of Prop 30, but those who make over 100000 a year are against it. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, it actually doesn't affect you know, the vast majority of Californians, just those with incomes over $2 million. Yeah, you're, you're teasing out data that are in our tabulations, I have to say, that really are not that significant. The differences between the income groups are not that large as I look across the, the income span. And this is not going to affect voters over $100,000 to any great extent. The proportion of voters who make over $2 million has to be in the 1% or 2% range. So this is a a tax that does not affect 98% of voters. So I, looking at it by income, I don't think really is going to be that helpful. There are much bigger differences by party, by ideology, uh, and you know whether you feel like you should just sock it to the millionaires uh, or not, uh, and you know whether you're convinced by what the governor is trying to say that this is just a grab uh, by special interests who uh, you know could be paying for these things themselves and not having the state having to pay for these things. So, you know, it's an open question on on how you're influenced, but uh, I don't see income as a big difference in in voting on this proposition. All right. Well, uh, last but not least on the propositions, we have Prop 31, a referendum on a 2020 law that would prohibit the retail sale of certain flavored tobacco products. Looks like it's going to pass. Any uh, reason for, you know, nail biter on this one? No, I don't think so. I, I think this one and Proposition One have the. We only pulled on five of the seven statewide ballot measures. They, they were the seem to be the most salient. But uh, I think both Proposition One and Proposition Thirty One, which is upholding the current law that bans uh, flavored tobacco products, I think they're both the excellent chances of passage. They're both comfortably uh, over fifty eight percent, and uh, it's it's not trending downward at all. So I, I think its chances are excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like otherwise the statewide races pretty much seem to be in the bag for the Democratic candidates, as far as we've seen, certainly the governor's race. But I, I did want to ask you about national polling. It's as we've talked about, it's been less reliable over the last couple of election cycles, at, at least. I, I'm wondering what you see around the challenges there. Or is your IGS methodology potentially a way to remedy some of those challenges? And are there any particular national polls that you think are particularly reliable? Now, the national pollsters have a much greater challenge, I would say. They can't 
there's no one universal voter roll uh, list in in the United States. I mean, in California, we have a very excellent and well-managed and updated list of registered voters. Uh, that does not exist nationwide. So the national samples has to, has to try to sample voters in a different way. Uh, they also uh, don't have the benefit of emails uh, appended to a voting record. So most uh, national pollsters now are trying out multiple methods of trying to reach people. They'll probably poll some people by phone. They'll probably attempt other uh, through uh, online surveys of pre-recruited sample people that they've recruited over the over the past year. It's a much bigger challenge, I think, nationally. Uh, and, you know, when I look out at the national polls, I tend to discount the ones that are supported or funded by one side or the other, whether it be Democrats or Republicans. I tend mm-hmm. to give my greatest uh, confidence in the national media polls. For example, uh, the ABC Washington Post poll would be quite credible. Uh, the NBC uh, Wall Street Journal poll, uh, the CBS News poll, um, you know, the the ones that are funded by these national media entities, I think, uh, are are probably doing as good a job as any. And those are the first ones I look at when I'm looking at the national poll results. All right. Well, it's really fascinating stuff. Thank you for those insights, uh, Mark. And I know I'm, I have a guess as to what you'll be doing tomorrow, probably glued to the, the returns. And we'll see how your polls uh, turn out in terms of the results. But thank you so much for joining us. That's pollster Mark DiCamillo of the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we're going to talk about California's proposed rules to usher in zero emission trucks. That's right after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we want you to be a part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about California's proposed rule to cut emissions and air pollution by phasing out fossil fuel trucks. So what do you think about California's efforts to transition away from fossil fuel-powered vehicles? You can give us a call for this segment. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay. So the California Air Resources Board is in the final stages of developing a new rule which requires public agencies and large trucking businesses to convert to 100% zero emission vehicles in the state by 2040. The regulation is called the Advanced Clean Fleets Rule, and it sets up a timeline for manufacturers to end the sale of medium and heavy-duty fossil fuel trucks and for fleets to replace diesel trucks with zero emission vehicles. So what are the impacts? of California trucking on emissions and local air pollution, and how would this rule change the state's trucking industry and electric vehicle infrastructure? We've got a great panel to discuss these questions. Let me start by introducing Daniel Sperling, who is the founding director of the UC Davis Institute of Transportation Studies, and he's also a member of the California Air Resources Board that is proposing this rule. So welcome, Dan, to State of the Bay. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. So, Dan, before we get into the details of the rule, I was wondering if you can just set the stage here. Can you tell us why the Air Resources Board is looking at trucking specifically in its emissions regulations? 
okay, first of all, we already have adopted rules for light duty vehicles, meaning cars and pickups and SUVs. Um, a regulation was uh, passed, adopted in August that requires all light duty vehicles to be zero, all light duty vehicle sales to be zero emission by 2035. So it's about one third in 2026, two thirds in 2030, 100% in 2035. And so now we moved on, the, the board is now moving on to trucks. All right. And what are the stakes here environmentally when we think about trucks and how they fit into our emissions profile? Okay. So, you know, first of all, just the status of this. So this is what I just described with light duty vehicles that was passed, adopted. Uh, It takes effect in 2026. This rule was proposed by the staff. The board uh, last week, I think it was, had a discussion about it but we'll actually vote on it uh, in a few months. And so the, so shall I give just a little description of it? Would that be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear just a summary of, of what the rule okay. uh, so, seeks to do. Yeah. So real quickly, it has uh, what you just said. It has a mandate that the manufacturers of trucks, that they must uh, be selling more and more of the, trucks as zero emission. And by 2040, 100% of all sales must be zero emission. So with light duty, it's 2035. With the trucks, medium and heavy duty, it's 2040. So that's half of the regulation, half of the proposal. The other half is um, applying a rule to fleets. In other words, um, you know, companies and governments that have vehicles that they operate, this is a requirement that they transition to electric vehicle, to uh, zero emission vehicles. And the and kind of the strategy on that is we've got a requirement for the companies to sell them. And this is kind of the other side of it that the fleets need to buy them. And so the, the, the rule is based on, it's spread across four different types of fleets. It's the federal government fleets, it's local and state government fleets, it's the drayage trucks, which those are the trucks that serve the ports, and then business, other business fleets. And it applies to business fleets, their so-called high priority, that have 50 or more vehicles and revenue of $50 million or more. So it's not real small fleets. You know, it's not your mom and pop's but it's, you know, it's kind of medium-sized fleets, you might call it. And is the idea that those fleets are maybe better economically able to make this transition, whereas the small mom-and-pop trucking companies aren't going to be able to do it? That, yes, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, and you mentioned that there was just a, a, a public hearing on the proposed rule. I think it was just last week. It sounds like it was pretty contentious and that there's going to be an, another vote by the board, which you sit on. Uh, down the road here in a few months. Is there a good possibility that the proposed regulation is going to change between now and then? And if not, where would you where would you vote on it if you uh, had to vote now on this? Well, I think based on the discussion, for sure, it's going, you know, 99% um, likelihood it's going to be adopted in a few months. And the question is whether it will be changed from its current format. And there were two major changes that were proposed. 
One was that it would affect fleets with uh, just 10 trucks or more. You know, the current proposal from the staff was 50 fleets of 50 vehicles or more. So the one proposal came mostly from the environmental groups and environmental justice groups that would be 10. And the other change was that the all sales be zero emission by 2036 instead of 2040. So you can tell from that discussion, you know, this is the discussion is not going towards making it, you know, more lenient or softer. It's going, the discussion anyway, is towards making it more aggressive. And the board was pretty much split in their discussion. I did go on the record. I did say um, publicly that I thought it should stick at the 50, uh, 50 vehicles or more and 2040 date. Uh, but there was lots of other discussion on that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you'd otherwise be supportive then. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring in the uh, industry perspective on this. Uh, we're very pleased to be joined by Chris Shimoda, who is the senior vice president of government affairs for the California trucking association. Welcome to state of the Bay, Chris. Thanks for having me, Ethan. So Chris, you represent trucking businesses in California. Can you give us a sense just first to set the stage here of the scale of trucking in the state? I mean, what, how, how large is this industry and what environmental regulations are already in place for trucking in California? Sure. So um, there's an estimated 1.8 million trucks on the road today. Uh, truck driver, believe it or not, even in the state of California, is uh, estimated to be the most common occupation um, within the state. And so it's a very, very big industry, services every conceivable part of the economy. Um, you know, the, the old saying in the industry is if you got it, a, a truck brought it. That's very true. Eighty percent of goods are delivered exclusively by truck. Um, existing regulations, we've actually had a you know, fairly long history with the Air Resources Board uh, regulating trucks um, going back as far as uh, I've been with the association now for 15 years. One of the first regulations I ever worked on was something called the California Truck and Bus Rule, uh, which did a phenomenal job due, due to uh, innovations by truck manufacturers um, actually eliminating uh, diesel particulate matter or diesel soot um, with uh, something called diesel particulate filters. Uh, That regulation, uh, which requires every truck on the road to be equipped with uh, very advanced emission control technology, um, actually comes to its close at the end of this year. Uh, Every truck on the road is gonna be required to be equipped with that equipment by uh, January 1st, 2023. Mm -hmm. And Chris, what is the industry position on this proposed rule? Well, you know, I, I want to start by saying that the uh, trucking industry does see a lot of promise with zero emission technology, um, but in certain use cases. So, uh, for instance, smaller class trucks, um, you know, think of your classic e-commerce vehicle uh, doing final mile delivery uh, with an eight to 10 period uh, hour period to charge um, overnight. Uh, other things like yard tractors, we have trucks that don't really leave uh, their terminals and just shuttle containers around. Uh, those are very promising applications for zero emission uh, technology. But, you know, the issue, and I think where, where the conflict is, is that um, the proposed rule um, does not call just for those trucks to be transitioned. It really 
uh, calls for every conceivable truck type, um, including those that simply cannot perform the jobs that they need to with zero emission technology to convert and at a pace that it would require the zero emission truck market to just basically leapfrog the light duty car market overnight, despite uh, today only 500 out of those 1.8 million trucks on the road um, are, are zero emission. Um, and so we're at the very, very beginning of this transition. I, I'd flag infrastructure um, as another major concern, um, you know, based on the Air Board's own estimates, we need enough truck charging installed every week to power. It's almost 100,000 households, and nearly none of this infrastructure is in place today. And I, I just say, you know, sort of the last major concern is there's a lot of complexities in deploying zero emission technology. It's it's very different than what we just went through. Uh, with getting cleaner internal combustion engines on the road. Um, I'll, I'll use as an example, uh, the Air Board estimates that uh, three quarters of Class 8 trucks are going to rely on public charging, uh, similar to the classic truck stop model we have today for, for diesel. Um, but if a trucker is in an area where there is no public charging or it's just inadequate, um, they are not going to be exempt from this regulation you're basically forcing a trucker to buy a very, very expensive truck that they cannot even plug in. And so, you know, these are the types of questions of basic feasibility that uh, we have raised. And to date, um, you know, we, we don't feel like the regulation sufficiently addresses. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, given that you do see some some value in zero emission trucks and you see some progress there, is there a version of this rule that you could support? Um, are you working on, you know, changes to make it easier to comply or is this sort of approach you're a non-starter? No, no absolutely. And I, I think for many years in every public venue I've been in, I have, uh, you know, sung the praises of zero emission technologies in this final mile delivery space um, w- with that specific use case where we can get the extended period to charge. You know, I, I think the most important thing um, and, and something that we've we've discussed with the board is, um, you know, you could set an arbitrary goal of trying to get all 1.8 million uh, trucks on the road, you know, as quickly as possible. But the reality is, you know, we are at just a few hundred of these trucks today. The most important thing that I think collectively the industry and the uh, agency um, should be focusing on is is getting a true commercialized uh, market for this zero emission technology, where it, it simply does not exist today. And so that that's uh, you know what we would hope to see out of these uh, discussions with the Air Board between now and the spring. All right. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing California's proposed rule to zero out fossil fuel trucks in the state. And we want to hear from you. Do you think California should require only zero emission trucks to be sold going forward or by a date certain? And do you have any concerns about this? Are you a trucker yourself or know someone who is and could share your perspective with us on it. We'd love to hear from you. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org or we're also on Twitter at State of the Bay, State of Bay. Let me go to uh, our, our, our last guest here. Last but not least, we have Sam Wilson, who is a senior vehicles analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists. So welcome to State of the Bay, Sam. Hey, Ethan. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you can join. And I, and I want to hear your perspective on this rule. And let me start by asking, maybe picking up where Chris left off there. Where, where do you see the market currently for zero emission trucks, whether they're battery electric or potentially hydrogen fuel cell, if you want to explain some of those uh, technology differences? Uh, where is that market right now? Where do you see it going in the next few years? Is it feasible for us to achieve what the Air Resources Board is proposing? Sure. Well, yeah. So today, um, there are actually over 130 models of uh, battery electric vehicles uh, available for purchase um, uh, uh, today. And, um, you know, it's we, we do expect the market to, to develop rapidly. Um, policies like the Advanced Clean Fleets Rule will serve to put pressure on the market um, uh, to, to get those trucks on the road faster. Um, but you know, I, I would like to just kind of circle back to to, to the meaning of uh, of this really important regulation, if that's all right. Um, I, I think that uh, we we haven't mentioned the the significant outsize impact of commercial vehicles on the road. So, you know, folks are probably listening to this driving around, you know, uh, headed home from work or whatever. Um, and if you look around, um, you know, it's mostly passenger vehicles on the road. So. Medium and heavy-duty commercial vehicles are just seven percent of the of the vehicles on our road here in California, but they're responsible for over sixty percent of smog-forming pollution, around half of all of the lung-damaging fine particulate matter pollution, and over a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions from on-road vehicles. So, um, it, it's it's a significant outsized impact, um, and and truly, it's one of the uh, uh, easiest places to find uh, reductions, uh, meaningful reductions in harmful uh, air quality pollutants and climate warming greenhouse gases. Well, Sam, I appreciate you putting the environmental context here uh, into into place for this discussion. Absolutely. The huge stakes here for both climate and, and air quality. And I'm curious, though, about the logistics of, of making this transition. You mentioned there's a number, uh, a pretty impressive number of, of uh, zero emission models out uh, available today, but what about the costs for the truckers that, um, like the Chris represents? Uh, how do the costs compare to a traditional fossil fuel alternative? Yeah, that's that's a really good point, and you know that that's that's something that we and uh, you know I'm sure the the truckers and the Air Resources Board are all looking at. Um, what we are finding is that you know right now as this technology is developing, sure the the purchase price of a uh, zero emissions battery electric truck is uh, in in many cases more than that of uh, of your traditional diesel or gasoline truck. Um, but you know as we see battery prices decline. Um, as the technology gets up and going, economies of scale get going, that purchase price is going uh, uh, to decline. And I think it's really important to note that, you know, when we look at the difference between commercial vehicles and, and passenger vehicles, a commercial vehicle is, you know, it, it's a capital asset that a business is using, and they want to squeeze every little bit last bit of value out of that. And so when we look at cost for um, uh, trucks, be they you know delivery vans or up to the large tractor trailer trucks, we're looking at it over a, its total cost of ownership or its lifetime cost. So that includes the purchase price, uh, interest from from the loan for the truck, uh, maintenance and fuel, and uh, we're, we're seeing that battery electric trucks have significant cost advantages over um, over their you know dirty diesel counterparts. Um, so uh, on average, it's about a 60% decline in maintenance and fuel costs. 
Um, and we are seeing, uh, according to CARB and several other um, uh, uh, credible uh, academic sources, that um, uh, the we'll, we'll reach a parity in, in total cost of ownership between battery electric and diesel vehicles by 2030. And what's more, um, we're actually seeing with uh, the new um, uh, credits in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act um, that the purchase price uh, for most classes of battery electric vehicles will be uh, the same or a little cheaper than their diesel counterparts in 2030. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris Shimoda of the California Trucking Association, let me uh, turn it turn to you with uh, the comments here that we just heard from Sam about uh, the total cost of ownership, but potentially being less as well as uh, the impact potentially of the Federal Inflation Reduction Act. And we actually had an email from a listener, Kara, who asked if that Federal Inflation Reduction, asked, uh, Reduction Act funding that just passed this year could help make it more likely for this California rule to succeed. So, Chris, w- where are you on the costs here? Do you dispute what Sam was saying? And, and how does the Inflation Reduction Act potentially uh, factor in here? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in terms of cost um, at this point in time, I mean, you know, we're, we're looking at projections into the future of these vehicles potentially getting cheaper. But today um, we are seeing estimates of if, you know, the audience may not um, know the cost of one of these uh, big rig tractors. They're in the neighborhood of about $150,000 new. Um, Many truckers operate used uh, trucks, um, you know, traditionally around the 50 to um, $60,000 range. Um, The uh, new electric uh, class eight tractors are being quoted above $400,000. And so this $40,000 tax credit from uh, the Inflation Reduction Act um, is going to be helpful. Uh, We're also continuing to have discussions with the Air Board about state funding, which is more significant, um, and the fact that after 2024, uh, fleets subject to this regulation are not going to be uh, able to access what's a little bit over $100,000 purchase credit um, from the state's uh, voucher programs. And so it's another issue to making these vehicles economical. And, um, you know, without uh, comparing studies, I, I just say that there are very credible sources such as NREL who have looked, uh, and, you know, for those folks who may not know, that's a National Renewable Energy Lab who have looked at the total cost of ownership um, in a lot of these different applications and found that it, it may never pencil out when you look at all of the factors um, I, I definitely don't dispute that um, electric vehicles should have lower uh, operations and maintenance costs, but you, there are other trade-offs such as um, the battery electric vehicles especially are expected to be roughly six to 8,000 pounds heavier than their diesel counterparts, which is going to significantly reduce uh, cargo capacity and put more trucks on the road. Um, The second would be uh, the time spent charging at this particular point in time is very significant. Uh, We did a comparison between uh, the only uh, uh, electric tractor, which is actually operating on the road today, versus a traditional diesel day cab and found that a driver is going to be losing. I mean, it's in the order of whole weeks uh, charging their truck. Um, and some of those costs were not included in the airboard's total cost of ownership mm-hmm. analysis. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I think it's still an open question. And, and definitely when we say those proper use cases for this technology, 
it's really in those places that we expect uh, the technology to be uh, market feasible uh, earlier than some others. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely time is money in a much more uh, uh, impactful way for, for truckers than for the average uh, passenger vehicle uh, driver. So let me go to the phone lines. We have Mike from Daly City calling in. Mike, welcome to State of the Bay. Hey, good evening. I don't have a strong position on this, but I have a couple of questions. Um, one, I'm presuming that truckers go across state lines, maybe even to Canada or Mexico, and if the infrastructure isn't up to speed in some of those places, across the U.S. especially, uh, would it make sense to have a phased approach where you might require 70 or 80 percent of all fleets to be zero emission by a hard date and just leave it open as a, this is coming but no real date on the 100 percent? And then I have a question, yeah. which is, does this apply to operated vehicles in California or companies that are owned by California or both? All right. Great, great questions there from Mike. Dan Sperling, a member of the Resources Board, can you uh, address those questions? You know, I can, but I think Chris is the real expert on this since uh, he's the one that his fleets are affected. Let me defer to Chris on this. Sure. Yeah, Chris, happy to go to you. Do you you want to respond to Mike's questions there about phasing it in for, for trucks that are crossing state lines and also which businesses it would apply to? Sure. So the the types of businesses, um, as uh, Professor Sperling had indicated earlier, it's it's initially going to be um, both state and local government fleets, um, fleets operating 50 or more trucks um, in the state. But um, these uh, requirements for port trucks, it's actually port and rail um, trucks, those go all the way down. Uh, to single truck operators. And so there is no fleet size limit. Um, we uh, estimate that's around 30,000 uh, trucks and and uh, slightly over 1,000 trucking fleets that are going to fall under that requirement. And so, um, you know, despite the fact that some of these requirements are limited to uh, some of the mid-size and larger fleets, there are parts of the rule that actually go all the way down uh, to the single truck owner operator. All right. Well, I want to thank Mike for dialing in with those questions. We also have an email from, oh, sorry, go ahead. Let me elaborate on something Chris said that's important here that, you know, the drayage trucks, which are the ones that are most aggressively being pursued, it's because that these are trucks operating at the ports and the pollution levels are especially high near ports. And that's where a lot of the low income and disadvantaged communities are. And so it's really an environmental justice uh, motivation, you know, to focus on the drayage trucks. And as Chris yeah, said, get the, know, the biggest you know, uh, co-benefit bang from the buck for those environmental justice communities, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if I could uh, just add add on to that, just just real quick. I mean, uh, Dr. Sperling's is absolutely correct. I mean, folks in in West Oakland living in and around the uh, around the port can you know experience up to five times or greater uh, cancer risk from diesel uh, you know de- toxic 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 diesel emissions but I think that it's it's really important also to note here that um, you know the the vast majority of, of the trucks that are going to be brought into this regulation during the first uh, uh, decade or so are going to be um, you know smaller delivery trucks. As proposed, um, uh, tractor trucks, even the the ones that are doing regional hauls, aren't uh, uh, being brought in until 2027. 
Um, and the vast majority of those um, are, 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 or rather, of the trucks that are being brought in in the first decade are going to be charging um, at at the place where they um, are, are housed at night or their depots. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that, I also think it's very important to note um, that that over ninety or around ninety percent of all commercial uh, trucks and buses uh, or trucks and vans rather um, are traveling less than a hundred miles a day on average. Yeah, and Sam, I did want to ask you about this, the infrastructure question. Uh, Chris has raised it, where these trucks are going to fuel up. Do we have the power available for it? We only have a few minutes left. Wondering if you could just briefly describe the, you know, the state of the infrastructure for charging these vehicles and what the future prospects are to scale that up. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with any significant uh, economic paradigm shift, I mean, it's going to be a heavy lift. I mean, CARB estimates, I think, 157,000 chargers that are going to need to be installed um, over the next few decades. Um, But I do think um, uh, 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 that uh, the technology is headed in the right direction. I mean, we're, we just saw a big announcement from uh, or about a megawatt charging standard, which is specific to medium and heavy-duty vehicles. So this is like, uh, you know, uh, leaps and bounds, uh, uh, faster energy delivery than even the fastest DC chargers for passenger vehicles that we have right now. I mean, we're talking um, a, 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 a tenfold increase. So... Um, uh, they're estimating that when this uh, standard gets online um, and we have the, um, uh, the, the tech, uh, it could charge up to 400 miles in 15 minutes. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that's great that this is, you know, it's going to be coming online. You know, we're thinking in the next two years, uh, which is six years ahead of when any of the long haul um, uh, uh, tractor trucks start to get brought into the rule at, at all, and at that, it's just ten percent. So you know, again, it's a very slow move towards uh, towards electrification for those larger trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. So well, so uh, Dan Sperling, I'm going to have to give you the last word here because we're just about out of time. But I wanted to read an email from Ruben who wrote in that, given the outsized impacts of truck pollution on climate change and the health impacts, particularly for frontline communities, does this rule go far enough to meet the crisis and transition our economy to zero pollution trucking? And also, are other nations moving more quickly than California? So, uh, Dan, wondering if you could put this in, in that context. Well, um, California is ahead of the rest of the world on this one. Uh, China does have more trucks, electric trucks, but um, this is the first in the world rule in the world to really accelerate this transition to 100% trucks. So it's a really big deal. Um, it is a model for others. Um, I, I would point out that Probably the my biggest concern actually has to do with the infrastructure. And that is, you know, for some of the fleets, you know, like we talked about these delivery trucks, you know, UPS, FedEx, Amazon, that's an ideal application. They, uh, as Sam said, they only go 100, 125 miles. They don't need a big battery pack. They don't need a lot of electricity. But it, it is getting more problematic when you get into the bigger long haul trucks and and needing, then we need public infrastructure. And then you need, you know, essentially a small power plant out there on the road. And yeah. the electric utilities are not the most entrepreneurial and agile uh, companies in the world to yeah. be responsive to this. 
Well, a lot of implementation issues for sure. A lot more we could discuss, but unfortunately we're out of time. So I want to thank our guests, Dan Sperling of the UC Davis Institute of Transportation Studies, Sam Wilson of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Chris Shimoda of the California Trucking Association. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us on this segment. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. All right. And hopefully we'll have you back on. We have a lot more we need to cover. But coming up after the break, you'll hear my co-host Grace Wan's interview with filmmakers Lisa Hepner and Guy Mossman, who are behind The Human Trial, a documentary about the hunt for a cure for type 1 diabetes. So stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. November is Diabetes Awareness Month. Over 37 million people in the United States have diabetes. That's around 11% of the population. And that includes about 8 million people who are undiagnosed. Roughly 1.4 million new cases of diabetes are diagnosed in the U.S. each year. And tragically, over 100,000 Americans die from diabetes every year. But there may be a new cure on the horizon. Tonight, we're talking about a new documentary called The Human Trial. It covers the development of a revolutionary new treatment using stem cells that could actually cure diabetes if it works. Here with us to talk about the film are its filmmakers, director Lisa Hepner and director of photography Guy Mossman. Welcome to State of the Bay, Lisa. Thank you so much, Grace. I'm really happy to be here. And Guy, we're so pleased to have you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Grace. Well, this is an incredible film, and I'm not sure I've ever seen a documentary about a clinical trial, but it was fascinating to learn how it all works. And it's not just about the stories of people who have type 1 diabetes. It's really the story of trying to come up with a cure. And you guys focus on a particular biotech company called Biosite, and it was trying a brand new approach to curing diabetes. Uh, Lisa, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so it's a really radical approach that Biosite is taking towards finding a functional cure for type 1 diabetes. Essentially, they have taken one donated embryo from an IVF clinic, and they have cultivated this stem cell line from a day five blastocyst to become an insulin-producing cell. So one donated embryo has created a stem cell line that can cure everyone on this planet with insulin-dependent diabetes. It seems pretty straightforward, but getting the science right and getting the funding, it's a constant challenge in it. And here in the Bay Area, we think, oh, Silicon Valley, biotech, there's just money is sloshing around in pools and puddles. But that is not the case. It's been tough for them to raise money for this clinical trial, uh, for this new treatment, hasn't it, Lisa? It's been very tough. This is what Mike Scott, one of the researchers, says so eloquently in the film, is that we need the money from investors to show that it works. But if it's not working right away, we're not going to get the money from the investors. So it's this catch-22. And this company is not creating the new Facebook. It's actually trying to find a cure for a major disease. And so to see the researchers struggle as much as they did and do often is, is really, really disheartening. I mean, we, we followed these guys, these researchers to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia and to Tokyo and to Canada as they tried to raise money to literally keep their lights on. And there was the chief scientific officer in Tokyo when, in fact, I wish that he'd been in the lab 
you know, mm-hmm. working on the next iteration of the product. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, that I mean, that's part of like what makes the movie go, which is like, are they going to keep the lights on? And you're following two participants in the clinical trial, Marin and Greg. Um, so you really had access to both the researchers and the patients, which is amazing. And everybody in that trial wants to know, is the treatment working? Is the treatment working? Um, what was that like to have access to the researchers and then the patients saying, like, am I going to be cured? It must have been difficult for the both of you. Lisa? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we became that firewall between the patients and researchers where we knew what was happening because the researchers were telling us. And then we were very embedded with the patients who were riding that hope despair roller coaster. So we had this privileged information and we had to watch patients really struggle with what was going to come next. And we knew that before they knew that. Mm. So the running joke, as you've said in the film, is that a, a cure is five years away and it always seems to be five years away. But what do you think now that you've covered this um, particular trial and done this movie, Lisa, wh- where do you think we are in terms of a cure? I firmly believe we are less than five years away. Oh, you heard it here first, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) These are fighting words for everybody in the diabetes community. And I would be the last person to spread false hope. This type of protocol has had immense success. Vertex is a big pharmaceutical company that has just acquired Viacite. And they've become a powerhouse in the field. And um, Vertex, which had earlier acquired a Harvard lab in November of 2021, almost a year ago today, they implanted their first patient and that patient went off insulin and remains off insulin. And now I believe they're up to patient three. And this is not secret information. I would never be saying it on the radio if, if this wasn't public knowledge. But the protocol of programming stem cells to be islet cells, putting them into a pouch, um, implanting that into a human being. I mean, it's, it's working. The holy grail that everyone is still working on is to not have the patient take anti-rejection drugs or immunosuppressants. Because when you transplant an organ, you have to take immunosuppressants so your body doesn't reject it. Yeah. But you fast forward to what Zyocyte and Vertex are doing together, and they've partnered with CRISPR, the gene editing company, mm-hmm. to create a stem cell line that evades the patient's immune system. That negates the need for these immunosuppressants. That's the home run. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. But the cells work. A lot of enthusiasm around it. And the patients are staying off insulin, at least the, the, the handful that have received that first dose from Vertex. I'm very wow. optimistic. We have to keep supporting it financially. And we have to keep talking to legislators and saying, you know, I know it's the midterm election. There are people dying every day from this disease. You have to pay attention. And this disease can be cured. Well, I wanted to talk about the role that insulin plays. I think everybody knows that insulin is really important to people who suffer from diabetes. It's one of the most expensive liquids on earth, as you mentioned in the film. It costs $10 to produce a vial of insulin, and yet the manufacturers charge up to $300 per vial. I mean, it's a a billion-dollar industry. Um, 
is there even an incentive for manufacturers to find a cure for diabetes when insulin is such a major profit maker, Lisa? An excellent question. The answer is there really isn't an incentive. I mean, we live in a capitalist economy. The big pharma companies have to answer to their shareholders once a quarter. I certainly have questions about is this system we should be following, especially when this disease last year killed 6.7 million people in around the world. I know that big pharma is not sitting on the cure. I just don't think there's an incentive for them to cure it. Mm -hmm. What we're learning is that the biotech company that we followed, which is emblematic of so many biotech companies, that they're the engines of change. They're the innovators. You know, if they are properly funded, whether it be through grants, nonprofits, the NIH, or venture capitalism, which you see in the film, um, we hope that eventually this innovative engine will get enough money to show that it works, the product works, and they will be able to get this breakthrough product to the people. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that's kind of how the system is. It's a capitalist ecosystem of drug and device development in this country. Mm -hmm. Can I jump in on that? Or great? Yeah, story. absolutely, Guy. Yeah. No, I had a really interesting conversation in Toronto over the weekend. We premiered the film there and with someone who is heading up a division at a major pharmaceutical. And they now are realizing they can't afford not to get in the race because of the developments that are happening between Vertex and Biocyte that really... A cure is not that far away. So a breakthrough like this will force a company to kind of come in. Well, that is exciting news. I mean, about the breakthroughs and your film is amazing. I want to say congratulations to the both of you. Um, the film is called The Human Trial. It will be released on November 11th and you can watch it on Apple Plus, Amazon and Google Play. I want to thank the director, Lisa Hepner, and the director of photography, Guy Mossman, for joining us here. Thank you, Grace. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners tonight for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Next Monday night, we'll be back live discussing fentanyl use, um, use among California's youth. So tune in for that show. Tonight's show was produced by Sam Klein-Markman, Wendy Holcomb, and Ann Harper. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening.